We'll hear argument next in number 97174, Cass County, Minnesota versus the Leak Lake, Leech Lake Band of Chippewa Indians. Mr. Marsh, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. It's Cass County's position in this case that the alienable land patented in fee by the federal government that subsequently reacquired the fee by the Indian tribe is subject to state and local taxation absent treaty or statutory exceptions to the contrary. In 1889, Congress passed the Nelson Act, which provided for the complete session and relinquishments of land to the federal government. Federal government, in turn, pursuant to Section 3 of the Nelson Act and in conformity with Section 5 of the uh, General Allotment Act, issued individual allotments uh, to Indians in conformity with the Section 5. Pursuant to Sections 4 and 5 of the Nelson Act, they sold pine lands, which were basically timber lands, on the open market to individuals. Pursuant to Section 6, they issued uh, homestead patents, or gave uh, patents and fee under the Homestead Act to various individuals, again, on the open market. In 1993, Cass County began taxing um, all of the above lands, and that was following the 1992 Yakima decision, which was set forth by this case, 1992 Yakima County versus Yakima Indian Nation. Um, At that time, uh, there were 21 parcels. 13 of those parcels involved allotted land, and that issue has already been uh, resolved in the uh, Eighth Circuit, and uh, there was a petition for uh, further review of that, and that was denied or cross-petition for that. So at issue here today are the Pineland parcels, seven of those, and one homestead parcel. These various uh, parcels I point out to the court are, are now, uh, the ones that are left are all in trust at the present time. They've been placed in trust, and I believe it's a matter of public record since about 1995. Um, why we're here today, there's still the, uh, the issue of, uh, of back taxes uh, that we're sued for. In addition, obviously, um, both sides want to know how to deal with lands. Are these uh, parcels within the, ex- the boundaries of the uh, tribal reservation here? For, for purposes of this lawsuit, we have stipulated that the lands are within the reservation boundaries. Whether or not they're within the accepted reservation boundaries based on some of the court's recent cases or not is a matter for another day. Right. Uh, they're within the reservation boundaries and held in trust for the benefit of the tribe by virtue of the reacquisition by the tribe? That, that's correct. They've subsequently been put into trust, and, and obviously the period that we were taxing them was one that while they were being held in fee up and until they were put into trust. And once they're put into trust, there's no dispute that we cannot tax them. And if, if they had never been sold off as pine lands and homesteads, you concede that no county tax would have been possible? That's correct. If they hadn't been placed on the open market, and it's our contention that the Nelson Act did that, and uh, indeed they had been taxed um, since their inception or their sale on the open market Mm -hmm. um, back in the early 1900s. And there were additional parcels that were reacquired pursuant to the um, lands covered by the Dawes Act as amended by the Burke Act, but they're not at issue? They're, They're no longer at issue. That's correct. And as to those parcels, the tax is being levied, and the Burke Act expressly says that taxation is possible, I take it. Well, the, the, the Burke Act says that, but we believe that the court went a step farther than that in the Yakima case in finding that the Burke Act made it more clear, but that the Je- Section 5 of the General Allotment Act uh, made it clear and made those lands taxable uh, as they were alienable, uh, following the logic, basically, of of Gowdy versus Meath, which was decided in 1906 and decided also by this court. May I be sure I understood something you said? When the land was reacquired by the tribe, 
is it, did you tell me that you seek to tax it while it was owned by the tribe, but you say you cannot tax it after the tribe had it put back in trust? That's correct. Uh, and who is the trustee? the United States the trustee? Yes, they are. Uh, under the trust process, uh, pursuant to the uh, Reorganization Act, which was passed in 1934, there's a trust process where the, the band can acquire lands, apply uh, to put them into trust, and, and uh, the Department of Interior makes a decision um, based on whether or not they're to be put in trust. And one of the uh, criteria for that decision is, is basically the effect on local units of government. I don't quite understand why it should make a difference whether the land is owned outright by the tribe or, or held for the tribe in trust by the United States. I don't know, understand why that should make a difference. Uh, you know, basically, that's uh, the, the, the difference being this, is that's what Congress uh, decided to do. I mean, they did a balancing test, obviously, when they did the, uh, passed the, 19, the Indian Reorganization Act and wanted to look at land. Well, the, re the answer, in other words, is that, that that's required by the 1934 statute. By that's correct. Okay. And there is specific language that says once it's put into trust, that it's not taxable. Is it also not alienable if it's in trust? That's not correct. That's correct. It could not be sold. It would have to go back through the, Fed the Department of Interior would have to prove any sale. And that's the Section 465 procedure that, was, that you said if they want to get tax exempt, it doesn't happen automatically. I think when Justice O'Connor asked you when the tribe reacquires it, does it then gain exemption? And I think your answer is no, not until there is this 465 procedure to put it back in trust, at which point it's neither alienable nor taxable. That's correct. So how many years are we talking about that it was in this um, state where it was reacquired by the tribe but not yet put in okay. trust? All of the parcels in issue, all 21 of them, have been purchased, were purchased since 1980. That was the earliest of those. 20, 14 out of those original 21 had been purchased in 1993. Um, we began taxing in 1993. I guess there was some confusion in the, uh, within the state, you know, can this land be taxed or not, you know, prior to being put into trust. And after the Yakima decision came out, at least at the county level, uh, we received one of the state memos basically saying that it appears that this land is taxable and we put it on the tax roll. So we're talking about two years? We're talking about, uh, well, basically, if, we, the, if it went on the tax rolls in 1993, it would have been taxes payable in 94, and the lawsuit was commenced in 95. And towards the latter part of 95, all of these parcels, or at least the remaining parcels, were put into trust. Um, so we're talking about a year and a half, basically, I guess, of actual payable taxes for most of the parcels, maybe more or less for, for some of them. Does, does the provision uh, of, of the law um, which enables these uh, parcels to be put into trust, does that say that, uh, that when they go into trust they are no longer taxable? Yes. Section 465 specifically says that once lands are in trust, they are not taxable. That probably wouldn't be necessary if uh, they're not taxable anyway, so long as the tribe acquires them. That's correct. It's our belief that the legislature could have, had they wanted to, with the Indian Reorganization Act, clearly made all lands that were acquired by the tribe not taxable or reacquired, but they didn't do that. They stopped short of that and, in fact, set forth that process to give us some input. But your um, point is that there's a distinction because if it's not put into trust, the tribe can sell it or do whatever it wants to with it, but if they put it into trust, they have to get the consent of the United States to do that, something with it. That's correct. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I point out to the court that I know that the uh, tribe in this particular case, and the United States is taking an opposite position, saying that, well, we just can't sell the land. And I would submit to this court that I don't believe that that's the case, and that's not our position. That, that you're talking about the Indian Non-Intercourse Act uh, Correct. Uh, argument? Well, and, what is your answer to the Indian Non-Intercourse Act? I mean, if you read it, it does say that, doesn't it? But, it, but, it, but it's real simple. It, it, one of the parts that it says early on, you know, it's passed in 1834, okay? And, it was earlier than that. Is that when it started? I thought it was. Yes, it was actually before then, but the latest version, I, I guess, oh, that, okay. that Congress had addressed was 1834. And, and it provided that uh, lands couldn't be sold without the permission of Congress. In other words, Congress was to sell lands. In other words, states couldn't take lands and start ceding them to individuals. Well, the simple answer to that, a real short one, is, is along comes the Nelson Act. There is Congress's authority. In fact, they take the land. They cede it and relinquish any title of it and give it to the federal government who then puts it on the open market. So is there authority? 
to, to get around the Non-Intercourse Act? Absolutely. And, and in addition, well, there was at the time of the there was at the time of the allotment and the other distributions. But the question is, doesn't the doesn't the term uh, don't the terms of the act cover it now that it is back in Indian or tribal ownership? Uh, it, two, two basic answers to that, I, I guess, is one, you know, if you look at the the logic of reacquired lands, if you're looking at that pure logic, you have the Indian Reorganization Act, which deals with the reacquisitional lands and a determination whether or not they should be taxable or not, whether or not they should be put into trust or not. And, and second of all... They, 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 the point that there would have been no point in, in, uh, in, in making that the taxability of a consideration when it went into trust if unless it were taxable before it goes into trust. Correct. Right, okay. And, and second of all, it's to that, you know, the court couldn't have decided Yakima case the way it did had that been the case because in Yakima I believe that there were some... Um, parcels of land that were due to go tax forfeited, and that was that issue also, because there was but, some but, government lands and some individuals. Yeah, but that may, that may imply that alienability simply is not the sole criterion. Correct. What, what, why, what is this, it seems to me if we're talking about these, these particular parcels, they're the same as any other parcels that have been out there uh, occupied and owned by people who are not Indians in fee simple. There could be many such parcels, and it could have ended up in the hands of non-Indians for many such re- many reasons. And so one day a, a tribe comes along and, and buys a parcel of land that previously didn't belong to the tribe on the reservation. And isn't the issue whether uh, once the tribe acquires that, whether it ever had, whatever it is, it's in the reservation, they bought it. Now, is it taxable or not? And if the principle is, well, it's not taxable only because it's in the tribe's hands, however it got there, unless Congress clearly says so. Where did Congress clearly say so? We, we believe that, that Congress clearly said that the land was taxable. Uh, first, uh, I, I guess looking at the Nelson Act itself, I mean, it, it gave absolute fee title to everyone. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with the issue. The issue, okay. that's an issue of what happens when the tribe owns some land and gets rid of it. Okay. Well, that's not our issue. Our issue is there's some land out there that doesn't belong to the tribe. We don't care how or why it doesn't belong to the tribe. It doesn't. Now the tribe acquires it. Okay. All right. Once it's acquired, is it now no longer taxable? And if the principle is it's no, not taxable once it's in the hands of the tribe, however it got there, unless Congress clearly says so, mm-hmm. where did Congress clearly say so? We, we believe that Congress clearly said so by making it alienable. And, and again, I don't want to pound on the Nelson Act, but mm-hmm. that's where it would be alienable. And then looking at the logic of Gowdy versus Meath in yeah. the Yakima case, which basically are, are uh, allowing for the taxability of the land because it's alienable. Uh, the tax is on the land itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that Congress has specifically acted in the area of lands and addressed that, you know, both, both in the Nelson Act and then later, of course, in the uh, Indian Reorganization Act. And if, if you look at the intent of Congress, and, and clearly we have to put up an unmistakably clear intent, and that's a burden we accept. And, and we do think that that's the correct burden of proof here. Um, we, we think that that is all met when you add up, you know, the, the way it's put into fee, okay, uh, the logic of the alienability of the Yakima and Gaudi decisions. Congress clearly made it taxable. And, and if you look at, the, you know, the, uh, the allotted lands, you know, they made them taxable after 25 years as opposed to immediately. You know, that was part of the, of the uh, General Allotment Act. So clearly, you know, you could look at that and say, well, in, in, in the case we have here, would it make sense to tax people that reacquired lands that were originally allotted to them and not tax uh, um, lands that were put open in the general market. I mean, that kind of logic doesn't make much sense. And of course, then they have the trust thing you were talking about. So why do they need the trust thing if they're not taxable? In, I mean, you know, if it isn't uh, non-taxable once they reacquire it. That, that, that's correct. And, and obviously, it. Uh, well, there's been an, a history of an ease of getting it into trust, and so one could look at it and say, well, you could always apply for trust. Well, what are you going to do to stop that? Well, we don't know what will happen in the future. Uh, more recently, the Department of Interior has changed some rules, which now allow for uh, 30 days after they decide to put land into trust for counties or local units of government to appeal under the Administrative Procedures Act if we feel that the decision was not appropriate. So we do have that ability now. Mr. Mouse, um, I'm... I'm not sure we have to reach it, but maybe we do. Uh, I, I'm really troubled by the, the uh, Indian Non-Intercourse Act. Suppose, suppose the uh, the tribe 
suppose this is land that, that was never tribal land. It was never it was never allotted. It, it was never home opened to homesteading or anything. It was just never Indian land. And the tribe, as a tribe, buys this parcel of land that that used to be owned by the Duke of Albemarle uh, way back. It was never sure. never tribal land. Um, why isn't that land covered by the Indian Non-Intercourse Act so that once the tribe has it, the tribe cannot again resell it without a, a treaty or, or authority from Congress? So in, in your scenario, you'd be talking about land that was re- or acquired for the first time outside the reservation? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think the Reorganization Act deals with land acquisitions by the tribe in general, either reacquired or acquired, and I think that those same provisions would apply. And it could certainly be argued that... Uh, what provisions? The provisions that of the, the provide for their putting under 465. And which imply, according to you, that if they are not put into trust, they are taxable, right? Correct. Yep, no. And, and, and then, then you would reason, and that, since they are taxable, you, you'd sort of go backwards from your reasoning for the purposes of this case. You're saying since they're taxable, they must be alienable. Just as for this case, sure. you say if they're alienable, they must be taxable. That's how you get there. Well, uh, that's ingenious. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that, but the, the, the alienability uh, results in taxability absent treaty or statutory exceptions. Now, there may be some treaties that make land that might be alienable, maybe you can sell it, but it's not necessarily taxable because it specifically says it's not taxable. And also, in addition to that, you know, the, the tribe also has the, uh, the ability to apply for uh, state exemptions and, um, without even going through the trust process, maybe to keep their land alienable, and, and maybe it's exempt for some, if it's for some uh, uh, governmental-type purpose that's uh, viewed by the, by the states as being exempt, for example, um, maybe a, a highway maintenance garage or uh, uh, similar like, you know, local units of government uh, are exempt from taxation. Just like cities are exempt from county taxation, unless they have investment-type properties, those would probably be found taxable. So there is a difference there. Um, I would submit to the court that deciding this decision to say alienability results in taxability absent treaty or statutory exceptions to the contrary would establish a bright line rule that could be applied. It, it doesn't go too far in that if there are individual treaties out there or individual statutes with some of the various tribes that, or states that prohibit this, that they couldn't be taxed. And I think that would be fair for all. I think that uh, um, this would uh, certainly allow the uh, both units of government input in the decision-making process, which it appears clear that Congress has given uh, through the trust process to allow the local units of government at least to have their say. Um, second, uh, you know, that as I, or another point out, as I also indicated, they have the ability to apply for state exemptions. I mean, that's part of the overall rule, too, and if they're appropriate, they can do that. Um, an adverse ruling in this case to the county and other local units of government could have an adverse ruling or an adverse effect on local units of government in particular by shrinking what has been heretofore, uh, you know, a tax base that encompassed encompassed these lands, and by taking, you know, these off in a in a large fashion or in a regular fashion. But you told us that in fact what happened. It's only a year and a half we're talking about because the government did put this land back in trust, and um, which made it. Exempt. So the argument that the counties are losing all this revenue wouldn't, wouldn't have had the opportunity to get any if the government had moved fast enough under 465, right? Well, I, I, I would submit to the court that if, if we're looking at the future, you know, the, the trust process has changed. And will the tribes be able to get land into trust into the future the way they have in the past? It basically, uh, um, throughout the history of the county, we've opposed them all and never been successful. But now there's a a new appeal process, and we haven't uh, haven't tried that yet, and that may result in the slowing down of lands put into trust, or at least give us some uh, um, some input or more input into that process. You know, is it going to hurt the tax base, for example? Uh, for example, putting a, a one of these parcels involved a casino. You know, taking a casino and putting it into trust 
going to hurt the county's tax taxing authority will it hurt the county because you know obviously when you have larger parcels or larger investments you're you're certainly talking about more government services that are needed for those parcels. Um, yeah. well, how close is Cass County to the Twin Cities? Cass County is about 200 miles uh, north. It's actually in the north central part of the state of Minnesota. It's a, it's a large county as counties go. It's, it's probably a, uh, close to the size of Rhode Island out here. And uh, uh, the uh, portion where the reservation is located certainly in there is a is a, a large lake that's probably 20 miles by 20 miles uh, with a lot of bays. It's kind of shaped like a maple leaf. And is that Leech Lake? Yes. And then there's some other uh, large lakes uh, uh, around it. And, and the economy up there, um, just so you got a picture of that, is basically one of tourism. That's the number one business up there. And there are a lot of, of, of parcels of land up there, obviously, that are owned by non-residents that come up there and they have seasonal cabins up there and and reside there for the summer and so the increase of services is obviously I suppose almost three or fourfold in the summer than it is during the regular part of the year. Can you yeah, ask you if uh, you you've called our attention to section 465 about the land going into trust. Did the course below give any attention to that section or has it been briefed at all? Or did you just, just come out of the blue this morning? Uh, well, we, we certainly raised it uh, all along, and, and I would say in the Eighth Circuit Court that um, the decision basically it gave us the, you know, the, the uh, allotted lands similar to what was in Yakima. Uh, didn't the, the holding was there basically didn't find for the pine lands and the homestead lands, saying that uh, they believe that this court relied on uh, um, the Burke Act. The provisor to, to, to find that language, yeah. and it's our position that the court, you know, looked at Gowdy versus Meath, and in fact, didn't find the the Burke Act necessary, but did say that it made it more clear. I guess if something's clear, and they make it more clear, so it had to have been clear all along. So, yes, very well, uh, Mr. Schessler, We'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. As a preliminary matter, I'd like to address a question that was raised about the Indian Reorganization Act in 25 U.S.C. Section 465, which is the section that allows the United States government to take land into trust for Indian tribes. I think there was an implication made uh, to the court that that section somehow granted taxing jurisdiction uh, to states and counties over land by negative implication. Well, what it says, that the negative, it does expressly say that if the, if the secretary does acquire the land in trust for the Indians, the land shall therefore be tax exempt, which one assumes that before it was acquired, it was not tax exempt. That's the argument as I understand it. Yes, it, it's yeah. basically a negative implication to which I think two responses are required. Uh, the first one probably is that that kind of a negative implication would be completely antithetical to the philosophy that was behind the adoption of the Indian Reorganization Act and the promotion of tribal independence and self, self-sufficiency that uh, formed the basis of the act and the rebuilding of the reservation land base that uh, at least partially that act was all about. The second thing I would point out is that, in fact, this court has addressed the negative implication question in the past uh, in a decision that was issued in 1973, Mescalero Apache Tribe versus Jones. The court had an opportunity to look at the legislative history and the wording of the trust provisions of the Indian Reorganization Act, and the court there specifically said that there was nothing in that act or its history which indicated an intent on the part of Congress to remove the traditional tax exemptions that tribes had within reservations. Well, but that leaves open the question, doesn't it? Because the question here is whether this particular tax exemption, in fact, would, is, is of the traditional variety or whether because of the, the, uh, the, the history traced in Yakima, uh, it's, it's in a different position. Yes, Your Honor. So I think, I think what the court said really leaves, leaves the question right where we find it. The point that I was simply making is that there is no authority within the Indian Reorganization Act in Section 465 to find a grant of jurisdiction, even by negative implication, 
uh, to counties or states to tax tribal that, lands. That may be. I think I, I thought the point was simply that it confirms a conclusion that we might reach on other ground. It does bring up, I think, what the basic point of this case is anyway, and the basic rule of law that should govern this case. Uh, it's a rule of law that even the county agrees with. It's not disputed. It was cited as authoritative by the county, and it's well known to this court. It's the unmistakably clear intent rule, the, what's called the per se rule against taxation of Indians and tribes in Indian country. The trouble is, we, we say that on the one hand, and we also have language very similar to that. It, that, that is, that it, it, it's a almost irrefutable uh, implication that where where there is uh, uh, where there is alienability, there is taxability. We've also said something along those lines, and and these these two uh, absolutes uh, uh, seem to be clashing head on in the present case. Your Honor, I would suggest that the unmistakably clear intent rule, or the per se rule, if you will, has a, a long and honorable history in this country's jurisprudence. It's about 150 years old. It has well, been the case of Audi against Meath also has a long, uh, and I suspect equally honorable. And uh, it seems to me if Gaudi against Meath controls, in this case, you lose. Maybe you can see a way to distinguish it. I can't. You give me an opportunity to do that now, Your Honor. I would like yes, to talk about yes. uh, Gaudi versus yes. because, after all, it is probably the foundation of the county's argument here. Uh, it's the uh, the case which the county uh, asserts set forth an alienability equals taxability rule, uh, and I'd like to make a few observations about that case. Uh, number one, the unmistakably clear intent rule was uh, even at that time. Uh, fairly long-standing principle in the law, uh, going back to the Kansas Indians and probably versus Georgia for that matter. So the Gaudi court was well aware of, of that principle. The Gaudi opinion, it seems to us, just, uh, just on the face of it, is a, a somewhat odd decision on which to base a fairly major shift from that per se rule against taxation. The opinion itself was only two pages long. There was a one-page statement of facts and a, a less-than-one-page opinion by Justice Brewer. The opinion does not examine in detail prior Indian law precedent relating to jurisdictional matters. The opinion does not seem to indicate that new Indian law ground is being plowed or is intended to be plowed in that short opinion. Um, and there's no indication, it seems to us, that the court is clearly establishing a new generic rule of law that says alienability equals taxability. Was the Indian Non-Intercourse Act in effect or its predecessor at the time of Gowdy? Yes, it was, Your Honor. And what, what are we to make of that Non-Intercourse Act as part and parcel of I think the court in Gowdy did not address or consider the Indian Non-Intercourse Act, and I think it was for this reason. And it's probably, I think, the most critical factor in Gaudi and perhaps one of the more misunderstood factors in Gaudi. And that is the fact that the Gaudi court treated the plaintiff in that case, James Gaudi, not as an Indian, but as a non-Indian citizen. It was stipulated to, in that case, that Gaudi was to be treated as a non-Indian citizen that was referred to by the court, and I think it was terribly important to the decision in that case. It was terribly important because it reversed presumptions. As a non-Indian citizen, Gaudi was presumed already to be subject to state law unless he could show an express federal exemption from that law. If he were treated as an Indian, he would have been presumed protected from state jurisdiction unless the county could have shown an unmistakably clear delegation of authority over him. What the Gowdy court did is rule on the exemption question. It ruled that James Gowdy could not demonstrate an unmistakably clear exemption from the taxation that was presumed valid over him as a non-Indian citizen. The court did not decide and declare that alien, the alienability of his land provided the jurisdiction over him that jurisdiction already existed because he was a non-Indian citizen within the boundaries of the state. If we did distinguish Gaudi along the lines you suggest or said it doesn't really apply anymore, what would prevent an, uh, an Indian tribe from buying five acres of downtown 
uh, uh, Minneapolis uh, and setting up some hotels, restaurants, and various other things and saying, all right, yes, or casinos, and saying we're immune from taxation. Then I think, Your Honor, you have the on-reservation, off-reservation. No, but I mean, you've now, where did that come from? I mean, uh, uh, why, why suddenly is it so in, inherently, absolutely clear that Congress uh, wanted to permit Minneapolis uh, to tax the casino owned by the tribe, but not indisputably, absolutely clear uh, that Congress wanted Cass County uh, to tax uh, the five alienable acres owned by the tribe on the reservation. I mean, I, uh, Your Honor, to answer that, I think you have to, to, to go back, basically, to the foundations of the country and the beginning of the per se rule against taxation of Indians right, I see in where Indian reservations. I see where you're going. I see where you're going. Okay. So let me, let me then ask you, is it, although in this case, quite clear what's on a reservation and what isn't on a reservation? It seems to me we've had quite a few cases where that's not at all clear. And how will we manage uh, that kind of distinction, which is now the one you tried to draw, where we have Indian tribes in Alaska or other places where there is a lot of dispute as to what the boundaries of the reservation are? That kind of distinction goes far beyond the taxation questions in this case. And frankly, it's always going to be with us in the context. It's not going to be with us if the rule is alienability means taxability. If the rule turns out to be alienability equals taxability, what has been said essentially is that the only land or property on reservations that is exempt from state jurisdiction is trust property, property actually owned by the United States in trust for individual Indians or tribes. You don't rely on the uh, Indian Non-Intercourse Act. I mean, I have the argument, I thought that both, both, uh, both you and, and the United States have made the argument that that, uh, in fact, renders everything held by the tribe uh, not freely alienable. Your Honor, we certainly do argue that, but our most serious concern is the alienability equals taxability rule. Uh, the, certainly the Non-Intercourse Act, we believe, would prevent the lands from being taxed if there was such a rule in this country's jurisprudence. So but that, we that, seriously argue about the validity well, of the rule itself, and what, that's our primary concern. But the, uh, the broad statement you just made, that, that if we adopted that rule, uh, uh, all, all Indian land would be taxable except trust land, is not true if we accept your, your, your INA argument, right? Yes, that's correct. The other point that I, I would make about that is by adopting such a rule, you have essentially de facto disestablished reservations because the, the rule of Indian country generally is, as, as you well know, that state jurisdiction is limited in Indian country. It's limited over both Indians and tribes within Indian country. Let me go back a minute, Mr. Schesser, to your, your comment about the uh, Indian Non-Intercourse Act. Uh, it seems to me if, if we held that to mean what you and the government say it should mean here, that a tribe today or tomorrow seeking to convey land in a business transaction is, is up against a very real burden. How, how would a tribe that wished to convey some land that it owns today go about it if, if, if the Indian Intercourse Act means what you say it means? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, you're correct. It, it does, in fact, impose a burden on the, trans- the potential transfer of lands that are purchased in fee by Indian tribes. We understand that. And we would hope that, um, if not now in the future, rules for allowing such transfer under perhaps more flexible circumstances than exist now for allowing, the, uh, uh, for allowing transfers of trust lands would be developed and the tribes could obtain that. So we understand that would, it's a two-edged sword. And that would take an amendment by Congress, I take it, yes, to it the would. Indian Intercourse Act. Yes, Your Honor. Gee, I don't think it's a two-edged sword. I think it's a sword on one side and a penknife on the other. I, I think it's a good deal for the tribes. They just ought to buy up all land in sight. And uh, they have a great economic advantage over all other landholders. Namely, they don't have to pay taxes. And uh, what they ought to do is acquire vast, you know, acreage and, and then lease it out to other people, w- w- which can be done very profitably because the, the scheme just uh, exempts the real estate from taxes. It, it's really a, a wonderful opportunity for the tribes. Your Honor, two points on that. Uh, number one, 
we still have to maintain the distinction between on-reservation and off-reservation. It certainly would not allow the uh, tribes to go off-reservation, uh, purchase land. Why not? And then essentially say they're not taxed. Why not? Why not? There's nothing in the statute that suggests there's any distinction between reservation or non-reservation land. Your Honor, I would suggest that the Non-Intercourse Act would prevent conveyance uh, of lands that were purchased off reservation, but not necessarily the taxability of those lands. Well, why is that? that? Uh, uh, I would base it on the, on actually on the plain wording of the Act. The, the wording of the Act does not talk about taxation. The wording of the Act talks about conveyance. And I think there is nothing that is necessarily mutually exclusive or improper about a piece of land being purchased off reservation that the United States would not allow to be conveyed without its approval uh, as differentiated from land being purchased off the reservation that might be taxable. But, but if, if you're right about the Inter- Intercourse Act, it isn't just a question of the Secretary of the Interior approving a conveyance. It's, it's, it's a, it has to be done either pursuant to treaty or convention so that some administrative approval in the Interior Department isn't going isn't to help you. Your Honor, unless Congress passed a, a procedure which allowed that to happen, right, right. Which, which is what we presume would occur in that kind of incident. Yeah, Mr. Chairman, for a couple of hundred years? I mean, <laughs> it's been around since around 1790, isn't that when, when, when the thing first came up? I don't know why they're going to suddenly uh, pass a statute. Well, it is, Your Honor, it's only been very recently that tribes have been in any sort of position to attempt to rebuild their tribal, tribal land bases on, on their own reservations. Why Mr. wouldn't Shins- that act apply to the Indians, Alatis? Because one of the curiosities about the Eighth Circuit decision is the land that was allotted to Homestead then reverts to the tribe and becomes non-taxable. But the land that was allotted to Indians doesn't acquire that status when it goes back to the tribe. So you know, think what, what would a rational legislature be thinking about saying if the land went to a non-Indian, then it immediately reacquires uh, its tax-exempt status. But if it went to an Indian, then it stays subject to tax. Your Honor, you're referring to the Indian Non-Intercourse Act? Uh, yes. Why doesn't that cover <coughs> the... Why wouldn't that take care of the whole case, not just the parcels that went to homesteaders? If my recollection is correct, and it, I believe it is, the original versions of the Indian Non-Intercourse Act included language relating to individual Indians. The last version did not. So the Non-Intercourse Act, as it reads now, only applies to tribes, to tribal lands, not individual lands. But, you know, ironically, if, you're, if you read it literally, I think it would have foreclosed the transfer from the tribe to the United States and trust for the tribe. Your Honor, except for the proposition that Congress uh, established a procedure to allow that to happen. But it hasn't. I mean, I mean, nothing in the statute authorized that, as I read it. Maybe I'm missing something. Nothing in the Non-Intercourse Act authorizes conveyances by Indian tribes to the United States and trust for the tribe. That is correct, Your Honor. That was authorized later by Act of Congress uh, when it passed the Indian Non-Intercourse or the Indian Reorganization Act and provided for repurchases of, tri- of uh, tribal land base. Not from the tribes, necessarily. It, it provided that the United States could acquire land in trust for the tribes, but they could acquire it from private. And, and I, indeed, I think that's mainly what was envisioned, acquiring it from private sources. So it wouldn't collide with the uh, uh, Non-Intercourse Act at all. Oh, you're, you're correct, Your Honor. In terms of in terms of the purchases of land as opposed to the conveyancing away of land. Right. Uh, the, the purchase of land has really only become an issue probably in the last couple of decades as tribal governments have built themselves up enough to actually consider being able to rebuild some of their, libel, their tribal land bases. Those land bases were devastated during the allotment era. Uh, the Leech Lake Reservation is an example of that, where over 90% of the land, uh, 95% of the land, uh, was lost uh, to Indians and the tribe during the allotment era. The whole thrust of current, uh, the current attempts are for the tribes to attempt to rebuild some of their reservations that were taken away uh, during the allotment era. And it makes a great deal of, uh, of difference to them, and it's very important to the tribes for several reasons, not only for uh, economic development and self-sufficiency. Well, they they were be- taken away. They were conveyed away, weren't they? They were removed from tribal ownership. I, I yes, by, by, a vol- by a voluntary transaction. 
uh, or by act of Congress. Um, but the, the last point that I was going to make is that it's also important for the tribes to rebuild these land bases because it is becoming increasingly apparent that much of the jurisdiction that tribes have as semi-sovereigns is being related to the land ownership that they have within their reservations. So it makes a great deal of difference both economically in terms of self-government and in terms of the, of the sovereign jurisdiction that they can exert that lands within reservations be rebuilt and that uh, they be required <laughs> by the tribes. And that's actually one of the reasons we're here is because the tribes are starting to do that and the counties and states are objecting to that. If I understand it, they said there, there is an out, which you wouldn't like, but it prevents downtown Minneapolis from becoming inalienable. And that is that the Indian Non-Intercourse Act uh, only applies to lands that have not uh, been sold in fee simple and thereby become alienable. But if the, if, the, if the tribe reacquires a land like that, well, it remains alienable. And, and that kind of interpretation applies on reservation, off reservation, etc. And if you accept that, you don't get into this problem of downtown Minneapolis. But of course, it then, if you also accept taxation follows alienability, means that, you, you, that this land would be taxable. You, oh, that's a long question. I'm sorry. I, I, uh, Your, Your Honor, I would simply suggest that if that kind of thing is read into the Indian Non-Intercourse Act, one could just as easily read into the Act that it applies only to Indian country and reservation lands. And if we're reading words into the Act, that would be uh, a more acceptable way of doing it. Thank you, Mr. Shesman. Ms. McDowell, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Ms. McDowell, may I ask you, not necessarily now, but at some point during your argument, to comment on, on the, the argument that Mr. Mouse made. And, and it, it, I understood it to go basically like this. He accepts the unmistakability doctrine. Uh, he then says, look what you've done so far. Well, look what you've held so far. Uh, you've held that uh, allotment land, that ultimately are reconveyed or ultimately uh, end up at the present time in the hands of an Indian uh, or of the, uh, a tribe are taxable. If those lands are taxable, how could you possibly attribute to Congress an intent not to provide the like treatment to lands that come back there, that come to the tribe or the Indian after having been through the Pinelands uh, conveyance process? Uh, or the, uh, or the, the process in, uh, uh, pursuant to the Homestead Act. It's an a fortiori kind of argument. And, and at some point, will you comment on that? Yes, we would initially take the position that there's been no clear statement here or clear expression of congressional intent. Well, no, he, he, but, but I think we accept, I mean, I think the premise of his, his argument was the, the, the statement does not have to have an express reference to the particular land or category of land. It's simply got to be unmistakably clear. And if it's unmistakably clear for allotment lands, it's got to be. You've got to have the same rule for, for non-allotment lands that were conveyed out. I mean, it would just be bizarre otherwise. And that's where the unmistakability comes from, as I understand it. We do not believe it's unmistakably clear that Congress intended to tax even the allotted lands in the hands of the tribe. Uh, there's only a reference in the General Allotment Act to taxation of lands in the hands of individual Indians. We would submit, given the um, governmental status of the tribe, that Congress would have made, needed to make an, a clearer statement of didn't, didn't we say that in, in, in Yakima? Um, we, didn't we equate, equate uh, land in the hands of the tribes and of the, and of the Indians? The court didn't draw the distinction in Yakima. However, the but it did expressly refer. It, it, it expressly referred to both, didn't it? It expressly referred to the fact that there were tribally owned lands there as well. Yeah, However, which were an issue, as I understand. Yes, that's correct. All right, if, if, you, if, you, if, if you take that as your starting place, uh, that, that allotment lands, which by whatever process end up back in the hands of the tribe, or end up in the hands of the tribe, uh, are, are going to be taxable. Isn't it a pretty strong argument that lands that went out by way of the Pinelands uh, or, the, or the Homestead Act kind of conveyances have got to be in the same position, uh, or, or you're attributing a, a certain sort of bizarreness to, to Congress? 
Uh, this court's rule is that there must be some sort of unmistakably clear expression of um, what Congress intended, and it's impossible to tell here what Congress would have intended uh, about land that came back into the possession of the tribe. But what if the court has determined that it is clear with respect to the a land that was allotted to individual Indians? Once the court has made that determination that that is clear, then why isn't it, as Justice Souter said, equally clear that no rational Congress could have envisioned a different treatment for the land that went out, not under allotments to individual Indians. What rational Congress would would say, yeah, we meant that if it was allotted to Indians, it's reacquired by the tribe tax-free. But if it went out under the Homestead Act, then, um, then, then, then the tribe has its exemption. Um. Congress uh, obviously would have understood at the time that there were many different um, tax statuses that might have uh, occurred with respect to the homestead lands and the pine lands, depending on uh, whether and how they were actually acquired. The lands, after all, were ceded by the tribe to the United States. It was possible that the lands would never be sold by the United States and thus would never become taxable. Well, we're talking about land that was sold by the United States. That's what we've got here. And as I understand, the object of those two categories of conveyances were either settlement uh, or exploitation of natural resources. And certainly those are two paradigm examples of land uses that Congress would have assumed would be taxable in the normal course. And and that, if anything, makes the a fortiori argument uh, all the stronger. Well, ta- Congress doubtless would have assumed that they would be uh, taxable in the hands of a an ordinary non-Indian uh, individual or business taxpayer, but we cannot conclude what Congress would have intended had the lands been reacquired by a tribe within the boundaries of an existing reservation. Uh, Congress was legislating in 1889 at the time of the Nelson Act and subsequently in light of this court's decision, for example, in the New York Indians, which squarely held that tribally owned fee lands were not uh, taxable to the tribe. So there was a background there that suggests that uh, we cannot conclude what Congress would have intended back then. Is it part of your submission that we overlooked the significance of tribal ownership in the Yakima case? Yes, Your Honor. It wasn't raised by the parties by the United States or focused on by the court. There are a couple of reasons why I think that might have been the case. One is that there why was did we take the trouble to, to comment that there were both tribal and non-tribal lands? There? Oh, that was certainly uh, part of the factual background of the case, Your Honor. Uh, but but if it was an irrelevant portion, we shouldn't have mentioned it. I mean, it, we've just created a lot of difficulty by mentioning that. You don't have to mention stuff that has nothing to do with your decision. Uh, the distinction was not drawn uh, perhaps because the focus of, of the tribe was on the uh, parcels that were owned by individuals. Those were the only parcels on which uh, the county had been attempting to foreclose in Yakima. Also, there was a special statute in uh, Yakima that applied to at least some of the tribally owned lands that provided that they would not be entitled to any special tax status by virtue of their ownership by the tribe. That suggested that in the Yakima situation, um, the uh, only protection that the tribe might have would be the same status, uh, same protections as would be available to individual Indians. Could you, could you possibly just quickly say what, what your view is on the question of if you followed Gowdy and followed the rule, taxability follows alienability, you'd have to get to the question, is this alienable? And then we get to the, the Non-Intercourse Act, etc. What's your view? Uh, these lands are not alienable. And Gowdy, is downtown Minneapolis alienable? Uh, we would take the position that the Non-Intercourse Act uh, was intended to apply only within Indian country. Downtown Minneapolis is not Indian country. Uh, this is consistent with the legislative history of the 1834 Act. Uh, the question arose about Section 465 and uh, its meaning. Uh, it's not a clear statement, obviously, of congressional intent with respect to the taxable status of tribally owned reservation lands. It should be emphasized that 465 was designed to allow the United States to take and trust um, both lands on the reservation and lands off the reservation, lands that clearly would have been taxable uh, prior to their being taken into trust. Why is this a big problem? I mean, the, the, the United States, who argues here on behalf of the, of, of the Indians, can, can obviously achieve what it wants to achieve simply by taking these lands into trust, can it? That's correct, but there are many uh, tribes that have held lands for um, over a century now that have not never been taken into trust and that have always been recognized to be exempt from tax. Take them into trust. 
Yeah, but they're protected by the, those lands, aren't they? They're protected by the rule, aren't they? And alienability equals taxability. Well, traditionally, those lands have been understood to be protected by the fact of Indian tax immunity, the absence of a clear statement, and the fact that those lands were within an existing reservation, uh, the New York Indians being um, an example of that case. Certainly, um, it's hard to attribute to Congress an unexpressed intent to overrule the New York Indians and other cases of that kind uh, when it passed Section 465. Uh, the Was 465 the source of the authority exercised in this case to acquire the, these lands in trust by the United States to hold in trust for the Indians? For the that's tribe. my understanding, yeah. yes. You say in your brief that Yakima, it's evident that it rested primarily on Section 6. I guess Justice Scalia can, uh, is best equipped to respond to that, but I read his decision to say when Section 5 rendered the lands alienable, it also rendered them accessible. But the decision then goes on to say that uh, it took Section 6 and the Burke Act proviso to make that To make it more clear. clear. It said reaffirmed, made it more clear, reaffirmed. But reaffirmed sounds to me like it was confirming what was already... I think it's especially important to look at Section 3 of the Court's opinion in Yakima, where the Court actually um, starts applying uh, the clear statement rule to the actual two taxes at issue in that case. And there, when the Court decides that the ad valorem tax in Yakima is permissible, it is because it constitutes, quote, taxation of property uh, within the meaning of Section 6 of uh, the General Allotment Act and the Burke Act proviso. But if everything rides on the Burke Act, then why didn't that protect only the parcels where there was premature patenting. May I answer, Your Honor? Uh, the court uh, looked back at Section 5 of the Burke Act, uh, of the General Allotment Act, rather, uh, to determine that Congress's intent, as clearly expressed in Section 6, also referred back to Section 5. Thank, Thank you, you, Ms. McDowell. Uh, Mr. Moss, do you have rebuttal? Real briefly, Your Honor. Good. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of things, I guess. One, just on, on the Burke Act, just to, to comment on that. The Burke Act needed to say that the land uh, given an early fee patented was taxable, because if it hadn't said that, I'd submit to the court, there was still that provision out there that had the 25-year trust period, and that would have meant that the land would have become alienable, not taxable to the, at the end of that 25 years. So the court had to, or I mean, the, 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 the proviso needed to say that for the early fee patenting. I think that clears that one up, and uh, hopefully, um, also she, re uh, you know, the the uh, U.S. referred briefly to the Section Three of the Yakima decision. Well, that dealt with the with the excise tax, and we're not here about that today. We're here on land, and I think the rest of the court's decision dealt solely with land, um, and those taxes are certainly distinguishable from from this. And and one final thing, the New York case that. Uh, uh, was cited several times here. Yeah, that involved the Non-Intercourse Act, but in that New York case, there was never any act of Congress to sell those lands. Those lands were aboriginal lands that were just merely put on the tax roll, and so... And that was, um, weren't those lands that had never been alienated before? They've, they'd that's been correct. Indian territory from, from the beginning, I'd say. That, that's correct. And it'd be our position that the Non-Intercourse Act applies to lands that have never been alienable. In other words, Congress has never made them alienable, and they've kept them just as they were. I, I have nothing further unless there's further questions. Thank you, Mr. Moss. The case is submitted. <laughs>